Exodus 32. So you may have seen it, you may not. Either way is okay with me, but last Thursday, I was in the paper. So my wife took my six-year-old Myron to the store to get a copy, and Myron saw my picture, and he said, Dad's rich. <laughs> Got a little miscalculation. Maybe he's looking at some toys he wanted for his birthday. And then he corrected himself. I mean, Dad's famous. Sorry to disappoint you, Myron. I am neither. <laughs> Getting on the Daily Courier doesn't make you either. So uh, just funny. We are in a disappointing section of Scripture. You have this incredible, Mark went over it last week, detailed description of how to build this tent of meeting where God's presence will come down and be with his people. And there's all these Eden images in it. It's recreating a new place where God can dwell with his people. So there's chapter after chapter after chapter of, hey, this tabernacle, it's all gonna be awesome. And then disappointment, great disappointment. Exodus 32, verse one. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, he's up getting details of the tabernacle. The people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives and sons and your daughters and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to Yahweh. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. This is the golden calf. The shadow that the golden calf casts on the rest of scripture is as big as the Genesis 3 fall. It comes up time and time again. So you have these people who have started to grumble and to complain, right? And now they begin to dismiss Moses. So they say this, it's verse one. It's, as for this Moses, the Hebrew there is actually a derogatory way. We'd say, oh, that guy Moses. They're saying that like, oh yeah, that guy Moses. Like they've dismissed him, right? We don't know what happened to him. You could send out a search party. You could try to find him. You're right at the base of the mountain. You could do something. 
They don't want to. They're done with him, right? He did his job. He got us out of Egypt. We don't need him anymore. People do that. They, they link in with some kind of a leader or a guru for a while. And once they've used that leader up or they've got what they want, they often dismiss and actually disdain that leader. It's like an empty ice cream carton. I don't need that anymore. I got what I wanted. So if you lead, just get ready for it. Because at some point, you go from hero to zero in the minds of people. So that's what's happened to Moses. He led them from out of slavery, and now they're just dismissing him. Ah, that guy. So they come to his brother Aaron. Make us gods. And Aaron says, you brood of vipers. No way. We have to be loyal to Yahweh and loyal to my brother. No way. If you would have said that, it'd be a very short chapter, probably a very short Bible, but he doesn't. In fact, in verse one, when it says they came to him, they gathered to him, the Hebrew there, it should be they ganged up on him. This is, they're telling Aaron what to do. They're not asking him. They're telling Aaron, make us an idol. And Aaron's probably afraid of them. When the Bible says the fear of man is a snare, he gets snared in, he gets entrapped by them, he's afraid of them, and he ends up making the biggest blunder of any priest in the Bible. Beware of the fear of man. I have a saying, I keep it in my mind. I am more afraid of God in the healthy way. I am more afraid of God than being the pastor of a small church. And that way it gives me a healthy understanding of relationship. I have to do what God's calling to me to do, not what people are saying you're supposed to do. Aaron doesn't. So he asked for the earrings. Why these earrings? Genesis 35 verse four tells us that the earrings had these cultic symbols on them, right? So they weren't just neat earrings that looked pretty. The earrings actually had a identity to the cult, identity to other idols, they symbolize something. And so they specific, he specifically wants, give me the earrings, give me the cultic symbols, and I'll make an idol out of those cultic symbols. Be careful what you adorn your body with. Be careful. Very careful. 1 Timothy 4.1 says this, in the last times, people will leave sound doctrines and they'll begin to involve themselves, Paul says, in the doctrines of demons. And the devil's really good. He doesn't come at you bold-faced and crazy and wild, like, come here, blunt, shoot black tar heroin. It's not what the devil does. It's subtle and it's slow. You can go to Urban Outfitters and you can buy tarot cards now. Why? Why is that at Urban Outfitters of all places? I look at the shirts that some young people wear and I'm like, do you know what that symbol is right there? Do you know what you're wearing around right now? Do you know what you're advertising? Be very careful. I think it's playing with fire and eventually it moves you. So last week, or last time I taught Exodus 23, I, I mentioned this, it's called the Bader-Meinhof phenomenon. It's where you like buy a car and the moment you buy that car, all of a sudden you see that car everywhere. Now, they've always been there. You just didn't recognize them. But once you bought the car, your mind begins to see them everywhere. 
What happens, I think, when there's this subtle, you start wearing symbols or liking symbols, you see it more places, you're like, oh, I'm gonna check that out. Oh, what does that mean? I wanna see more of it. It like invites you in. Be careful. It's the very earrings, the very symbols of the cultic stuff that get fashioned into, verse four, this calf. And if you think about like making an idol to worship, what would you choose? I'd choose a lion, I think, right? Strong and noble and the king of the jungle. I might choose an elephant, just huge and impressive, right? The largest land mammal. I might choose one of those. At least if I'm going for bovine, I'm gonna do the bull, right? Ever been to a farm? You keep your eye on the bull because he can hurt you. No one's worried about the calf over there licking the snot out of its nose. It's the bull you're worried about, right? But they make a calf. And they declare, they, plural, the people, the calf, this is the gods, plural, that brought you out of Egypt. So there's a debate here because the word Elohim, it is plural, but Elohim can refer to Yahweh. It's a title, God. Elohim is plural. It can refer to God or it can refer to God's little g, all the little gods, the little deities, the Baals and the Molochs and the Ashtaroths. So there's a debate on, do they believe the golden calf is Yahweh or do they believe it's another set of gods? And in the Hebrew, the way that you figure that out is you look at the verb that's talking about Elohim. And in this case, it's plural. So the, it's believed that they're now moving out of monotheism. Yahweh is the creator God. We're gonna worship him. And now they're moving back into Egyptian polytheism, the gods, plural. They're starting to worship other gods. A calf starts out golden and cute, right? Like who doesn't like a little calf? They're cute. But if you follow Israel's idolatry, it doesn't stay still. It's golden and it's a calf to begin with. It ends up when, before they're taken into Babylonian captive, it ends with this God named Moloch. In King Manasseh, it says in 2 Kings, chapter 21, verse six, made his son pass through the fire of Moloch. What is that? Well, Moloch was this ugly, cast iron, squat God that had these outstretched arms and you would fill its belly with fire and then you would offer your firstborn son as a sacrifice to Moloch. So it goes from cute golden calf to a horrendous child sacrifice with Manasseh. Isn't that the way of sin? It's always a wedge to bring in perversity. Like it, this reminds me, and I deal with this enough, it reminds me of pornography. Right? It lures men in with the golden calf. Oh, so beautiful. Oh, so, oh my goodness, so attractive, so airbrushed, so fake. And then you start talking to those men that dive into it and the stuff that they get lured into. And I have not met a case where it doesn't take them deeper and darker because that's what porn is. It requires deeper, darker, grosser. And the end result is men cry and say, I don't know what happened to me. I can't believe where this took me. Don't play with fire. Don't play with it. It will 
burn you. Be very, very careful. So verse five, here's what Aaron does. <laughs> he sees this, he sees the people are into it. Hey, that's the gods that brought us out of Egypt. He's like, okay, well, that's cool. So I'm going to build an altar. And then he does this. Tomorrow shall be a feast to Yahweh, right? Okay, it's Yahweh now plus the golden calf. We'll bring them together. It's called syncretism, mixture. The golden calf, what the golden calf did was this. It made God really safe, right? He's a calf. It's gold, it's beautiful. Calves are something you can control. So here, we've got a God now that's safe and controllable. And he's gonna agree with our idols now. I think we do the same things today. We try to make God agree with us. Instead of us being transformed into his image, we very often try to make God transformed into our image. So I'm not greedy. No, 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 no. I wanna be successful. So we return things to make God besties with idols. Homosexuality. You read Christian circles, and I've done it, and the six sections of scripture that deals with homosexuality, they have turned them so much now that now God's besties with homosexuality. He, in fact, wants people to be homosexual. They've taken it and they've made best friends with it. It's not deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. It's I have to act authentically on these urges, contrary to the very gospel of Jesus Christ. We're always doing that. We're trying to make God controllable, trying to make him like us. We sow our wild oats on Saturday and come to church and pray for crop failure. But we're gonna see something here. We'll see what God thinks about the golden calf. And I remember this conversation I had with this man. Like it, was, it was like this, uh. <laughs> it was 45 minutes of Calvinism versus Arminianism. And we were talking, it was great discussion and we went on and on and on. And then he went into a meeting and the next day, I'm talking to the pastor they met with and said, well, he just got caught in serial adultery and some homosexual acts and just the list was huge. I'm like, and he wanted to talk to me about Calvinism? It's just like syncretism. Like if I can talk about God, I'm okay. Well, I think if you're talking about God, you're supposed to be saying, I'm broken, fix me. I'm worshiping things that are wrong. Correct me, that's what's supposed to be happening. And so it says this about them. The people sat down to eat and drink and they rose up to play. They're not playing Monopoly. It's not what they're playing right here. The Hebrew here is, it's a rave party. Just get naked, dance, rave. First Corinthians 10 says they committed fornication. And from this point on, idols in the Bible are almost always linked with fertility cults. So they put an idol in what was called a grove of trees. It was a place where shady activity could take place. So it was kind of a place you could go away and do your shady activity and then come back to town. Now we don't even worry about the shade anymore, do we? We just do it in the open. Like we're, we're, we're even different than that culture. It's like, well, we don't even need the trees. We'll do what we want. So here's the golden calf. This is it. Now we get God, his analysis of this. Verse seven. And Yahweh said to Moses, go down for your people 
How good is that? It's like mom and dad when the teenage son is off. You get home from work, wife is like, your son, you would not believe what your son did today. <laughs> That's what God's saying to Moses. Your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt, I just love this, have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshiped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Yahweh said to Moses, I have seen this people. There's a play here with Aaron and the people. The people saw, Aaron saw, and God sees. And you can compare them. This is what God saw. I have seen this people. And behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. Wow. Does God get angry? Apparently so. He seems pretty hot right here. I set you guys free from Egypt. You are slaves that I redeemed. No one else wanted you. I wanted you and I chose you. I parted the Red Sea, right? Every morning I feed you with bread, right? Are you hungry? Okay, go outside, sweep it up. It's just right there every morning. Denny's Grand Slam on your front step. If you're, you want meat, I'm sending in quail and they're gonna fall right in front of you. You can eat them, right? That's unbelievable. God's been so good to them. And he spits in God's face. And God gets angry and he's like, Moses, step aside for a second. I'm gonna kill all of them and I'm gonna start over with you. <laughs> Does God hate sin? Apparently so. Apparently, God is not indifferent to what people do. That he hates sin and he hates it so much because of its destructive nature towards people. I could ask for a show of hands, I will not. But who here has been hurt by sexual sin? Adultery or fornication or rape or being molested, right? A gift from God that humans have taken and corrupted and hurt other humans with. That's why God hates it. This hurts people. And so God's hatred and his wrath towards sin is setting up a category in your head and as you continue to read the Bible, you see it's a setup for the cross where God's justice, his wrath at sin, and his mercy kiss that God can stay just but also gracious. It's setting up. He hates sin. So he says, Moses, I'm making a new nation of you. Father Moses had many sons. Many sons had Father Moses. And we're one of them. How flattering would that be? I wonder what Moses thought there for a second. I wonder if this is his biggest temptation. Well, God, you know, people do kind of like me. <laughs> you couldn't select a better guy, but you know. How about us when things aren't quite the way we want them to be? When people aren't doing what we want? What if God said to you, yeah, that church is messed up. 
I'm gonna start another church with you. Your ways. Ooh, well, okay. That's pretty good. But what does Moses do? Verse 11. Moses implored Yahweh, his God, and said, oh, Yahweh, why does your wrath burn hot against your people? <laughs> They're not mine. Do not give me those people. They're yours. Whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand. Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent, did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth. Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. And all this land that I have promised, I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And Yahweh relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. So Moses has this grand opportunity. Started over with you. He says no. And he intercedes for the people. So there are these big feasts that Israel has. Passover, Feast of Booths, their biggest one is called the Day of Atonement. On the Day of Atonement, Moses' prayer is reread every year, reminding them of this intercessory prayer. And what, God's, what Moses says to God is really four things. You chose them, they're your chosen people. You demonstrated your power in delivering them. Destruction would ruin your reputation. You've got these promises you made. God hears those four things, and the Bible says he relented. Literally, he repented. God repented. Do you have an issue with that? Do you have an issue with God repenting? And at the end of this, we'll talk a little bit more, but God throughout the Old Testament will warn his people He'll speak, this is what's gonna happen to you. And then based on the people's response, God will repent. Just read the book of Jonah. Isn't that exactly what happens? 40 days, Nineveh's gone. What do the people do? Repentance, sackcloth, and ashes. God says, okay, I'm not gonna do that. And Jonah knew something. The reason why he read it, he says, I know if they repent, you'll have mercy on them. Why? Because he read his Bible. That God says, this is gonna come on you if the people repent. God takes repentance in the place of his punishment. Do you have an issue with that? Man, you sure should not. That's the gracious God we serve. Who says, this will come on you. And my response to that, his word, if I repent, then God says, all right, I will take your repentance in place of judgment. That's incredible. And it's seen over and over and over. And I think God is smiling at Moses right here. Because 40 years before, when things got hot, what did Moses do? 
He ran away. Just, I'm out of here, man. I ain't dealing with that. Now things get hyper hot. Does he run away? No, he prays. He prays. He intercedes. He becomes the shepherd that God wanted for the people of Israel. He's becoming it. He's becoming more like God. Heart of compassion, heart of love, heart of kindness. So what you're gonna see now, from this point forward, from Exodus 32 forward, all the way through to Malachi, it's an echo of three things. Israel, Israel's idolatry, Israel's stiff-neckedness, and God's compassion. And those are themes that run from this chapter to the rest of the Bible. Israel's idolatry, Israel's stiff-neckedness, and God's compassion. And be thankful that God's compassionate because I can tend toward idolatry and I can tend toward stiff-neckedness and God still has mercy on me. So verse 15. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back they were written. The tablets were the work of God and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. That's a lot of information about those tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there's a noise of war in the camp. <laughs> but he said, it is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot. And he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to a powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. I love the naiveness of Joshua. Hey, it sounds like there's a war down there. <laughs> it's not war. It's love in the worst sense of it. That's what you're hearing. It reminds me of a good friend. His name is Billy Graham Palos, and he's from the subcontinent of India, the very bottom corner of it, just a conservative guy. And so he comes here and one of my buddies was driving him to Portland and they didn't stop in Eugene and they went by U of O and they went by one of the dorms there and Billy's like, wow, let me take a picture of that. He goes, this is the male dorm or is this the female dorm? And my buddy's like, well, it's co-ed. And Billy looked at him and his eyes got just giant. He goes, there could be fornication happening. <laughs> I'm like, there is fornication happening. <laughs> like it was just like, what? How could you just, uh, you're a little naive about America, I think. It's kind of like Joshua, a little naive. No, that's not happening down there. So Moses comes down. It would have been a wooden calf overlaid with the beaten out earrings. And so he burns it pounds it to a pulp, and then makes the people drink it. It's a bummer when your God can be burned and you have to drink it. You might wanna get a different God, because that one, eh, it's not very good. If you can burn him and pound him and drink him, yeah, get a different God. 
So here's the application to this little section. Moses has one of the most amazing experiences ever. He's on a mountain with God. God makes tablets and writes on them the very finger of God. Like that's an unbelievable event. And he descends off the mountain down into the worst sin in Israel's history. Best time ever, worst time ever. Sounds like a good opening to a book. It was the best of times and it was the worst of times. Get used to that. Jesus in Matthew chapter three is baptized by John the Baptist. The heavens open. The spirit descends upon Jesus. The father's voice is heard. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And then immediately following that, he's driven into the desert where for 40 days he does not eat. And then he's tempted by Satan himself. Top, bottom. Elijah wages war between Baal and Yahweh with the 450 prophets of Baal, builds an altar and says, call down fire if you're God. If Baal's God, let him bring fire and burn this thing up. They do their thing, they dance around, they cut themselves, they can't do it. Elijah says, bring a bunch, Elijah says, bring a bunch of water, douse this thing over and over and over. He prays the simplest prayer in the world. God, show that you're strong and burn this thing up. Boom, down comes fire, burns it all up. Man, that's a mountaintop. And then the queen who loved Baal said, the gods curse me if I don't kill you before this day. And he runs off into a cave and gets suicidal and says, God, kill me. Mountaintop? I mean, it's over and over. You can just go through the Bible because that's the way it is. So you can have a mountaintop moment. Volunteer for kids camp, volunteer at a high school camp, volunteer at a middle school camp, and then you come home to your house and your kids are insane. Know this. It's spiritual. It's spiritual. And the weapons of our warfare are not physical. What does Moses do in this time? He intercedes. That's the weapon we have. God, I know this is spiritual right now. I know this is probably an attack because I had a mountaintop moment. Help me to walk through this valley well with your strength and your power and not overreact. That's what you do. Go to a great men's retreat or a men's morning Bible study and you go to work. Expect to be blamed for something you did not do when you get to work because that's just the way it works. And when you're ready for it, you're like, okay, I get it. I see what's happening right now. It's a theme in scripture. You go from mountaintops to valleys really quick. And that's what happens to Moses. All right, so here's what he does. He's hot, right? It says his anger burned hot. Is that a good place to be in? The New Testament, James says, the wrath of man works not the righteousness of God. He's burning hot. And look what he does. And Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you? that you have brought such a great sin upon them. Did they waterboard you? Did they torture you? Did they kidnap your children and hold them for ransom until you made it? What was it? <laughs> and Aaron said, let not your anger of my Lord burn hot. <laughs> for you know the people, come on, these people. Ah, you know how they are. 
Mistakes were made, but not by me. You know this, people. That they are set on evil. Not me. It's the people. For they said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Preach you right there. So I said to them, let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me and I threw it into the fire and out came this calf. <laughs> it sounds like a four-year-old talking about how he blew it, right? I just threw it. I don't know, dad. It just came out of the fire. Like, wow. <laughs> oh man. Oh, it's so good. When men are confronted in their junk, they blame. That's what they do. Who's Aaron blame here? It's the people. They're bent on evil. When men are confronted in their junk, they blame. It goes all the way back to our great, 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 great grandfather, Adam. When he's confronted by God in his junk, what does he do? It was the woman you gave me, right? You created her. She's got a flaw. You fix her. I'll be over here gardening like I'm supposed to. So bring her back when she's fixed. And men from that point forward, when they're confronted in their junk, they blame. What's a better way? You're right. I blew it. Change me. That's what we're supposed to do. First John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When you blame, you miss out on the cleansing and you miss out on the cure. When you get confronted and you know it's true, admit it and pray God cleanse me from that. So here's what happens. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, literally they were running wild. So if you keep reading the Bible, you get more and more laws. Guess why there needs to be more and more laws? If your kids are running wild and taking an ax to your table, you have to make a rule for that, right? Okay, from now on, no axing the kitchen table. You didn't think you'd ever have to make that rule, but they're running wild doing something. So you gotta make these ridiculous rules because they're doing stuff you can't even imagine they're doing. That's the rest of the Bible. Like, I can't even believe that you did that. You took an ax, right? So the rest of the rules is that. It's God continuing to saying, I can't believe you're doing that. Here's some more rules for you. We'll get to 613 pretty quick. So... They're running wild. For Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies. Then Moses stood at the gate of the camp and said, who is on Yahweh's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said to them, thus says Yahweh, God of Israel, put your sword on the side of each of you and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day, about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, today you have been ordained for the service of Yahweh, each one at the cost of his son and his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. Hmm. A little strange, because Moses had interceded, right? God said, I'm gonna destroy them. Moses intercedes. 
God relents. So why now does he come off the mountain and decide that he's going to punish them and kill them? He does give them opportunity to repent, right? Whoever's on Yahweh's side, come to me. He gives them that opportunity. It could be that the 3,000 that had sinned were still dancing and doing their playing. Could be. So they were just flaunting it. And that happens. I think the hardest people sometimes are people that want to go to church and not obey God. It's a hard group, Acts chapter five. It's dealt with there too. So I don't know. My thinking is this. Maybe Moses overreacted here. He's burning hot. The righteous man's wrath does not work the righteousness of God. God never commands this, right? If you look at it in verse 35, God already had a way to deal with this. He was gonna send a plague. It's the word of Moses that they obey, not the word of God that they obey. I think Moses overreacts. And you see it again later on when God says, hey, speak to the rock and water will come out. And he takes his staff and he smites the rock and says, must I fetch water for you rebels? And God has to take him aside and be like, hey man, I wasn't mad at anybody. What are you doing, bro? So it might be his tendency. Seems to me. It's my thinking there. So reaction. It already been dealt with. God had his ways. The wrath of man does not work the righteousness of God. So here's it out. How it ends. The next day, Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin, and now I'll go up to the Yahweh. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to Yahweh and said, alas, this people have sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But Yahweh said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. But now go lead the people to the place about which I've spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then Yahweh sent a plague on the people because they made the calf, the one that Aaron had made. So Moses now says, hey, there's a next step I have to take. I took care of God's judgment on you, but I wanna get forgiveness for you or atonement. So I'm going to go back up there and I'm gonna talk to God because I want you to be atoned for at one with God because he just stopped his wrath, but you're not atoned for yet. So Moses gets like the, the intricacy here. And Moses says this, he puts himself in the position of blot me out as well. He becomes a mediator of sorts. If you're gonna blot them out, do it to me. So here's what this is doing and I'll be done. This is a putting a folder in your head of the most important thing of the Bible. This event, the golden calf, wedges itself right in the middle of building the tabernacle, right? You've got the details to build it to chapter 31. Golden calf is 32, 33, and 34. Then 35, they build the tabernacle. It's wedged right into the middle of the tabernacle. What's the tabernacle? It's a space where God comes down and his presence is tangibly, even visibly in a cloud seen by the people where God could once again commune with his people. But before it can be built, it's interrupted. Why? Because God's presence need, needs intercession. It's always that way. So Moses though, I think fails here. He gets mad, shouldn't have got mad. God had his ways. Right? So Moses is a kind of mediator, 
But what we're gonna find is he's not good enough. He's not allowed into the promised land, right? Because he's not a good mediator. And you keep reading the Bible, and you keep seeing this, the failure of mediators, right? King David, was he a good enough mediator? Well, if King David came to Edgewater and applied for a praise position here, we'd be like, uh, bro, you're great on the harp. I mean, you rock that thing. But you got this issue, you can't keep your hands off other people's wives? And you've killed like 10,000 people. Yeah, we can't hire you, right? You just keep seeing it. There, there's, the, there's not one in the Old Testament that is righteous enough. How about Abraham? He had that Hagar moment, and he allowed his wife to be taken into other king's harems. Like, bro, really? To save his skin. Like, uh. Just over and over, what you see is there's a failure of mediator. But this puts in your mind a folder that says there needs to be mediation for God's presence to come down. Now, who could that possibly be? Well, John, the author of the Gospel of John, was tuned into all of this. So he uses a term, it says when that Jesus came and he dwelt among us. The word dwelt there is literally the word tabernacled. He is ultimately the tabernacle. He's the intercessor. He's the one that allows God's presence to come. So after the Exodus, we're gonna move to this book called Hebrews. You know why? Because Hebrews says this, Jesus is better. He's better than the tabernacle. He's better than Moses. It is the landing spot for the entire book of Exodus. And you and I, brilliantly, we have Jesus. We have God's presence now in us. We have become the very temple of God's spirit. The goal of the whole Exodus thing. Brilliant. So Jesus, thank you for taking up residence in us by your spirit. May we be a people that are full of that spirit, empowered by that spirit, producing the fruit of that spirit. So even in this moment, Lord, for each of us, we're leaky vessels. Fill us, empower us. Help us not to choose physical weapons, our tongues, anger, when a spiritual weapon is the only one that will do. Help us to turn quickly to the power of your spirit, the power of intercessory, intercessory prayer, because those work. So go with us. May we be a holy nation, royal priests in Grant's past today. I ask and I pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys.